My name is Mark the Cosmaker. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. This morning's scripture reading will be from uh, Ecclesiastes 5.10 to 6.7, which can be found on page 555 of the Pew Bible. Uh, it is a tradition here at Christ Church that we rise for the reading of God's Word, so if you please rise. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toils that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Please be seated and take a moment to ponder on God's word.
And you'll need your Bible open to that particular passage. And as we begin, I want to look at an old painting by a man named Quentin, Quentin Massis. He was a master painter who lived around the year 1500 and lived in Antwerp, Belgium. And Antwerp, Belgium was a major intersection, a financial intersection between northern Europe and southern Europe. And so in the 1500s, there was a lot of uh, transactions happening, a lot of commerce moving, and Antwerp happened to be one of those place, places. So there's a lot of business transaction. And in the 1500s, Quentin Massis was there, and he was painting. And one of his most famous paintings is this painting, and it's called The Money Lender and His Wife. And you can kind of immediately assess, you know, what's happening by looking at the picture. Here, here's the money lender, and he's spent his day working, and he's counting his coins, and here's his devout wife. And she's reading what's probably the Bible, but you notice she's distracted. She's sitting there, and she's turning the pages of this eternal treasure, and yet she's got this temporary treasure right next to her, and she's turning away from an eternal treasure and she's focusing on a, a temporary treasure. And so that's the main thing, but it's just interesting. A couple of things here. You see above uh, the money lender, what do you see above his head? Just a single apple. Maybe just to say, this is the great temptation. You're just easily distracted off of what's real. And, and Masis just puts this single apple there to say, yeah, this is a great temptation. And then you can hardly see it from where you are, but just above her hat on the right side is a, is a candle whose flame has gone out. It, it's like as, as if to say, even though she's got this eternal treasure in her hands, her spiritual flame has been extinguished. And you see it because she's, she's distracted over something that would give her her soul flame into something that can't satisfy. And we'll come back to this at the end. But this is a perfect picture of what uh, Koheleth or the preacher of Ecclesiastes is telling us, especially in this particular uh, part of the passage. It's that the art is depicting a very familiar tension, and many of us are familiar with it. We're, we're here this morning, we have the Bible in our hands, we consider it a treasure. Many of us are hoping for a word from the Lord in some way from the text. But we're like the moneylender's wife, we're, we're easily distracted, we're, we're easily captivated by the various currencies in our own culture. And you can turn this off for uh, a little bit. Uh, Koheleth, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, is a, is, he's a great help to people who are easily distracted. Not just in this passage, but the whole book is, is about, hey, there's a lot of currencies out in the world, and they all can, can be distracting. And he's, he's been distracted by all of them, and he's trying to come in to say, hey, don't be distracted by this thing. Because it ends in vanity, it ends in meaninglessness. And so Koheleth is the wisest and the wealthiest man he, who ever lived. He's used every currency to try to find satisfaction. But what he's discovered is that satisfaction is sold separately. Sat real satisfaction is sold separately. Under the sun, this reoccurring phrase, 
you won't find satisfaction in the currency of pleasure. We saw that in chapter 2. You won't find satisfaction in being in control, chapter 3. You won't find satisfaction in your work, chapter 4. And you won't find satisfaction in your money, which is our text here this morning. Let's look at verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also a vanity. See, wealth makes promises it can't keep. Wealth writes checks that it can't cash. Wealth promises satisfaction. But Koheleth understands because he's used this currency trying to find satisfaction. And he tells us, hey, you don't need to go down this path because it ends in vanity. Just trust me, I've been down this path. I've been down this path in a way you probably never could because I'm the wisest, wealthiest person on the planet. And even though I had so much, I ended up in just a cul-de-sac of vanity and meaninglessness. Meaning, meaninglessness. Satisfaction is sold separately. Now, you might be saying, and because we're the kind of church we are, you wouldn't say it out loud, but if I was over at Robert Campbell's church, You might be saying, amen, that's right. You preach it, preacher. You can't find satisfaction under the sun in money, in work, in pleasure, in being in control. But I have this sneaky suspicion that even though you may want to shout amen, there's some sort of little whisper in your mind that says something like, but if I won the lottery, I really would be satisfied. It would wash out so many of my problems, so many of my stresses that, yes, I I hear this and I believe it, but I'd like to give it a shot. (laughs) And so we all have that sort of whisper that somehow we feel like if we had a chance, it would be different for us. And Koheleth is telling us it, it wouldn't be any different. So in our text this morning, the preacher exposes the vanity of wealth in the first and the last sections. And we'll get to those. And then in these middle verses, he gives us his answer, how we should live in a good and wise way uh, as we think about our wealth. So let's look at those first and last sections exposing the vanity, and we'll get to the answer at the end. Verses 11 and 12. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats a little or eats a lot. But the full stomach of the rich won't let them sleep. So he's making these two observations. The first observation is, and I love the wording, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. As your cash flow increases, so do your consumers. There's a a great series of films on ESPN. They're called 30 for 30. Some of you have probably seen a few of them. And they're little biographies or documentaries all about sports figures or maybe sports events. And they had one on a few months ago. And the title of the biography of this little documentary was called Broke. And what it, what it did was it looked at several well-known athletes who had signed multi-million dollar contracts. 15, 20, 30 million dollar contracts. And what did they end up? Broke. 
So it was, it was really detailing, well, why, why with all this inflow did these people end up broke? How is it possible? And, of course, there were lots of answers that they talked about. But one of the main answers, you know what one of the main reasons for them being broke? Their entourage. Suddenly, when I signed the $20 million, million contract, I had all kinds of friends that liked to follow me around. And when all my friends started following me around, they became like consumers. And everywhere I went, guess who had to pick up the tab? The, the rich athlete. So, so the rich athlete, the somebody who suddenly comes into cash flow, realizes he's got all these consumers around him like leeches just waiting to suck off some of his cash flow. And, and Koheleth would say, hey, I could have told you that 3,000 years ago. Right here, I'm telling you, as your cash flow increases, so do things or people who would like to uh, consume your cash flow. You probably know this. Just let's just take a simple example. It doesn't have to be a person. Let's say you bought an iPhone. You buy an iPhone and maybe you get the $50 iPhone or $100 iPhone or the $150 iPhone, whatever it is. And you think, OK, I got the iPhone. Is that all that I need? No. Why? The iPhone begins to consume some of your other cash because you have to have a case for it now. And, of course, because you have an iPhone, you have to get some special apps and those special apps cost some things. And then you've got to get the insurance because if you break it, then it costs you five thousand dollars to replace this hundred dollar iPhone. So even if it's not a person, you get something and somehow it has tentacles and says, hey, can I bring my friends along? And my friends always need some of your cash. And so he's making this observation, no matter how much cash flow increases, those who would like to consume it increase as well. Second observation he makes in verse four, the poor laborer has no problem falling asleep. But the rich man is over here sucking down NyQuil and chewing on Sominex trying to find sleep. So the, 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 the wealthy man is promised satisfaction. He's promised sleep. Oh, if you could get all these things, then you wouldn't worry about your sleep patterns because you'd have everything covered. And, and Kohala says, no, 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 that's not how it works. You see, you see, as your cash flow increases, then you've got all these people that increase and their problems multiply. And then you have these businesses and some of them aren't working at some point, And you've got all this anxiety and then you're eating this rich food. You can't fall asleep if you're in this kind of condition. And even the, the laborer, he may be hungry, but he can get a good night's rest. The, but, but the person who has a stomach full and a bank account full can't seem to find rest. This is what he's personally experienced. And he's trying to help the listener or the reader say, you don't need to go down this path. Wealth promises something that it can't deliver. And then he gives this really bitter example. Look in, with me at verse 13. There is a, a grievous evil, and literally it, it, it means it makes me sick to think about. So I've made these observations. Now, now I'm going to give you this bitter, bitter example. And when I, when I just think about it, it makes me sick. And here's what he says. I've seen this under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. And then those riches were lost in a bad venture. He's the father of a son, but he doesn't have anything to give. 
He came from his mother's womb and he was going to go back, go back without anything. This is also a grievous evil. Moreover, verse 17, all of his days he eats in darkness, vexation or anxiety, sickness and anger. This this rich man was spoiled twice by his wealth. First time riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. It's a young man. He gets into business. He's the money lender. Money's good. But money's good if you're working hard. So you got to put in extra hours. Extra hours is stay away from church. You, you, you disregard your family. You disregard your friends. You, you miss opportunities with people. Uh, sleepless nights are a regular part of your week. You, you begin to build up anxiety. There's no time for vacation. But, but all of those losses, as much as they hurt and they spoil, thing, spoil things, it's all seen as, well, that's just part of the price to, be, to pay if you want to end up wealthy. So the man makes these sacrifices. They do genuinely hurt. But then finally, he does become a rich man. So he's hurt first by his his pursuit of wealth. And then look at verse 14. Those riches, all of those, all that hard earned money is lost in one bad venture. You see, he'd made all these sacrifices and he turned into this 50 or 55 year old man. And really, he he'd really hurt himself. He'd hurt his faith. He would hurt his family. But finally, he does have this money and he sees he sees Enron out there and says, I'd just like to put all my money in Enron or I'd like to put all my money with Lehman Brothers or I'd like to to give all of my money to just some swindler and, and the rich, rich owner becomes friends with Bertie Madoff, gives him all of his hard-earned cash, and like that, he loses it. See, he's been twice bit by his pursuit of wealth. First, he made all the sacrifices, and finally, when he gets his money, he gives it to somebody, and it quickly disappears, and he ends up broke. You see how it says, here's the result. He's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. See, he doesn't have an inheritance. Proverbs 13, the other wise man of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. This man can't leave an inheritance just for his own son. Now, it is true that you come from your mother with nothing and you leave the world with the exact same amount. Nothing. That's a truism. But that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is this man had worked so hard for all this wealth. And yet at the end, he he doesn't have anything to give away. He doesn't have anything to help the, the next generation with. And it's a great sadness. It's a grievous evil, Koheleth says. Well, maybe that's not quite true. He does have something to give away. You see it? Verse 17. Here's the inheritance that he leaves. Unfortunately, it's not money. What is it? Four things. Number one, he leaves behind depression. See, he eats in the dark. Here's a man, he's just lost his family, he's lost his friend, he's lost his faith, he's lost his hope. He eats in the dark. 
That's part of the inheritance that he gives away. Just because he thought wealth was going to be the satisfying thing, and then he finds out that it's not, what he has left is depression, vexation. He's, he's going to leave for his family all this anxiety, all this emotional, ter, emotional turmoil. Number three, sickness. All the, the financial debt has created this huge stress, this huge burden, and it begins to break down your body, not just emotionally, but physically. So he's hard to take care of in his old age because he's just physically worn out. And finally, his last piece of inheritance, like his, his last coin, is anger. He's a bitter old man. I mean, what an inheritance. I'm sorry, kids. I don't have any money, but I have anxiety, depression, and I have anger. I mean, I got plenty of that. Come, help yourself. You see, Kohelis is saying, this is the end of this path. You don't need to go down this way. He's trying to help the reader understand that. Then you see again in the second section, he basically supplies another bitter, bitter example. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Here, here he's describing a, a man who hasn't lost everything, but he has everything. See, in the first example, he has a man who's gotten everything and then he loses and he turns into a bitter old man. His second example is here's somebody who's been given everything by God. He, he lacks nothing, the text says, but he ends up a bitter old man. Whether you have it all and you lost it all or you have it all and you keep it all, both end in this bitter old man syndrome. Look, his, his, he goes unfulfilled, verses 3 and 6. Even if he had a hundred children and lived a thousand years twice over. It's, it's a way of saying, even if he had a massive abundance. Now, I have to say, if I had a hundred children, I mean, I don't know if this is how I would describe joy. But, I mean, he's, they're saying abundance. If you had just so many kids and, and you had 2,000 years to live and enjoy, even if he had that, his soul, his appetite wouldn't be satisfied. Uh, Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, it's part of this quote's on the front of your bulletin. This is a great description of why the man can't be satisfied. Alcorn says, he who lays up treasures on earth, listen, he who lays up treasures on earth spends his entire life backing away from those treasures. You're laying up treasures on earth and the day constantly is approaching that you're going to lose all that treasure. And you feel it. It's coming like a freight train. He who lays up, spends his life laying up treasures on earth is always backing away from, from the treasures. To him, death is a loss. He who lays up treasures in heaven who's looking forward to eternity, he's moving toward his treasures, so death is a gain. He who spends his life moving away from his treasure has reason to despair. And that's exactly what's happened with this second example. The man's still living under the sun. He's disconnected from God. So he's just holding on to his wealth. But no matter how much he holds on to his wealth, he knows as each day the sun comes up, he's a little closer to not being able to hold on to it. He can't take any of it with him. And so he just lives in this constant sense of being unfulfilled. No matter how much he has, he can't find satisfaction. He's not only unfulfilled, he's unlamented. 
Look at that. He has no burial. Imagine that. Here's this incredibly wealthy man. And certainly he had all kinds of friends that would like to come around him. He had a big entourage. But yet when he died, nobody really cared about him. When they had the funeral, just the preacher came. That was it. Because he was getting paid. Nobody really cares about this man. And I don't know if it's because he doesn't have any joy. He's this bitter, rich man. But he doesn't have any family. He doesn't have any friends to come to his own funeral. No one's mourning that he's passed away. You remember the, the, the man Herod the Great? There are a lot of Herods in the Bible. But Herod the Great was the Herod that was in charge or the ruler of Israel when Jesus was born. So when Jesus was born, you remember the wise men come from the east and they come and find Herod. And they say, we know there, a king has been born and we'd like to find him. And Herod gets the, some other people together and says, go to Bethlehem. And so they're, they're going to Bethlehem, they're following the star. And then you remember Herod said, will you come back because I'd like to visit the king. But he didn't really want to visit the king, did he? He wanted to kill this possible king. And when the wise men didn't come back, Herod put to death all the boys in Bethlehem two years old or younger. That was the kind of man that Herod was. He was a man of incredible wealth, incredible power, incredible position. But he was so universally unpopular that he himself knew when he died, no one would come to the funeral. And you know what he did? He made this decree That on the day of his death, people from all over Israel, prominent Jewish men from all over Israel, would be put to to death the day he died. So that there would be mourning all over the country, even if it wasn't for him. That's a man who lives in meaninglessness, in vanity. He has it all from the world's standard. But he has nothing. His life is a a mist. It's a vapor. And the wealthy man in our text here in chapter six, he's he's in such a sad state that the preacher gives really a very graphic illustration. Look at verse three. If a man fathers a hundred children, he lives many years at the days of his life. Days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied. He doesn't have a burial This is what I would compare him to. A stillborn child is better than he. The stillborn comes in vanity and goes in darkness. In the darkness, its name is covered. You don't really know anything about this person. It's not seen. The son, it doesn't know anything. Yet the stillborn somehow finds rest. And this wealthy man can't find any satisfaction. See, having everything minus joy is vanity. If you have everything except joy, then you have nothing. And that's what Koheleth is trying to help us understand in in the text this morning. Now, it gives a brief answer to how he would look at wealth. Let's look at these few verses. Chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, okay, this is what I'm seeing. Now, I've seen all this vanity, and he's trying to give you an answer. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. 
the few days of his life. And then notice the connection that God has given him. See, we're, we're under the sun, but he's trying to connect your life under the sun to something that's above the sun and understand that all of the things that you have have come from God. This is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them should accept his lot and rejoice in his toil Rejoicing because you know this is a gift to God. Verse 19. For he will not much remember the days of his life. He's not worried about leaving a legacy. Why? Because God's keeping him occupied with the joy in his heart. The, the preacher's answer to these perpetual problems, whether it's pleasure or it's being in control, whether it's work or it's wealth, is really the same. And that is, you must see your life, you must see the seasons and the times of your life, you must see wisdom and wealth and work all as gifts of God. you got to see your whole life as a gift of God. Everything's coming from God. And so once your perspective changes, once you see your entire existence is solely a result of God's giving rather than your getting, once you see your entire existence as a result of God's giving rather than your getting, once you see that, then whatever season in life you're in, you can have joy. That's, a, that's a critical that you understand that. Once you see that every season, whether it's a time to be born or a time to die, a time to mourn or a time to laugh. Whatever the season, once you see that every season is a gift of God, then you can stand in that season. And even though that season may be a lot of turmoil, you can still live in that turmoil with joy because you know that the Lord is near. Now, I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was getting at in Philippians chapter 4. And this would be a very familiar passage. He says to the Philippians, remember, Paul's writing from a prison cell. And he says this, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have, listen, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. And I just want to say, what's the secret? What is that secret? I want to know that secret. How can I be content in every situation? Whether I'm well fed or I'm hungry. Whether I live in plenty or I live in one. And the answer to this, this question about what's the secret is a little bit earlier in the passage. In chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, the Lord is near. See, see, the Apostle Paul, writing from a prison cell, knows God is orchestrating every event, whether he's free or he's in prison. God is orchestrating every single event, whether you're in freedom or you're in prison. 
And once you know you've lived on those extremes and you trust in each case, whether I'm in plenty or I'm in want, whether I'm well fed or I'm hungry, whether I'm free or I'm prison, God has ordained every single moment of your life and he's near. Then you can say, I can have joy in this moment. I can be content because the Lord is near and the Lord is what brings contentment, not the gifts. The giver is what I'm focused on, not the gifts. And so Paul has this perspective. And I think Ecclesiastes 5 and Philippians 4, they provide this necessary corrective to some misguided views of wealth that we have, especially in, in our culture. Let me give you a couple of them. Number one, the prosperity gospel. Sometimes called the health and wealth gospel. This is pretty much if you have cable television and you turn on channel 43, that's pretty much what you're getting. I call this the Christian Ponzi scheme. So you give money and at least a few people are successful. So you just keep, well, okay, at least that guy won. So he won the lottery. So I must give some money and I got to sow a seed. Some of the language you'll hear would be something like you're a child of the king, so you should live like a king's kid. And you get the audience going, amen. Of course, there's all kinds of problems here. It's a whole other sermon. But one of the main problems is that we actually do know the kind of life the child of the king lived. There was a real child of the king. And we do know exactly how he lived. He died on the cross. And he said, beware of money. And if you'd like to follow me, what do you have to do? Take up your bank account. Take up your cross and follow me. The poverty gospel. Another second misguided view of wealth, meaning you sell what you have, you give it to the poor. And somehow choosing poverty in some way is some measure of increased spirituality. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying when you do it and you feel like you're more spiritual, then it becomes a problem. Uh, The Bible does call us to be generous, obviously, take special care of the poor. But the, the only case that we have for Jesus telling somebody to sell everything is just one case. And that's the rich young ruler. So it's not universal for sure. And it seems to me that Paul indicates here in Philippians 4, the better measure of spiritual maturity is contentment, not poverty. See, Paul's saying, I've been I've had everything I wanted. I've had nothing that I've wanted. And I've learned to be content in both of those situations. So a more balanced view of this is not selling all you have and thinking you're more spiritual It's being content because you're not really focused on the gifts You're focused on the giver. Third misguided view, and this is a particularly toxic view, very easy to have. I've had to battle against it myself, and that is the I know better gospel. You've got the prosperity gospel, meaning you should have health and wealth. You've got the poverty gospel, meaning you should just live in poverty. And then you've got the I know better gospel. 
And the I know better gospel is something like this. When someone looks at another person's clothes or car or home or vacation and thinks, well, if I had all that money, I, I know how to use it better. And that's toxic. That is toxic. Why? You're the judge. You get to judge everybody in the world about how they're using their money. Now, of course, you're not going to say it that way, but that is what you're saying. You know, you should spiritually be over these people. You should be able to direct how they use their money. Now, I don't think in America in general, that's a good, good thing. Because you've got seven billion people who would look at your situation and think about you the way you might think about somebody who uses their money in a different way. When I was in college, there was a well-known speaker and he would go around and he would say something like this. It's a sin to drive a BMW. <laughs> and, of course, it was a way to get everybody to sit up in their chairs. But do you see what he was doing? Well, I mean, how about a Pontiac? How about a Yugo? How about a bicycle? I mean, where, where, where are you going to draw the line? And every time I make a purchase of my watch or my shirt or my tie or my car, do I need to come to you to get that cleared? You see, I think when you read the text, both in Philippians and in Ecclesiastes, the, the Ecclesiastes is saying your wealth is a gift from God. You should enjoy this gift. Now, you have to steward it in a certain way. But it's not something that you should feel uh, some kind of like I'm a loser for this or I, I'm doing something wrong. That's not what he's saying. And Paul's saying you should enjoy the time that you have plenty and then you should be content even when you when you have want or when you lack. So both Paul and the preacher are, are telling us there is going to, there are going to be those times of plenty and want. And the main thing that we need to concentrate on is the gifts is the giver, not the gifts. Let's go back to the money lender and his wife. This is a little bit harder to see from where you are. But you see the, 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 the uh, Macis is just painting this picture. It's got all kinds of neat little symbolisms. And you don't really pay attention. Down here, what you can't see too well, is a little mirror. And the little mirror is showing you something that's not actually in the scene. And it's a mirror of a stained glass window. And maybe you can see it where you're sitting. What has it got in the center of it? It's got a cross. And you can't see it from where you are. I probably should just send it to you this week in the newsletter. There's a man down here in the corner. And he's got his hand reached out and he's holding on to the cross. And art historians say the man in the picture is Macis himself. He draws himself into the picture. And he puts it right here in the middle as if to say, I understand the tension. And the answer to this tension is I've got to cling to the cross. That, that's my only hope. And so when we come to the end, as we come to the end of this sermon, my questions would be, are you distracted by money? Whether you have a lot or whether you have a little. Do you find yourself in your devotions, you're turning the pages, but really what's on your mind is what's over here. Are you clinging to the Bible, but you're hoping currency is going to solve your problems? And the answer, one of the main answers to this temptation is that the Lord is near. 
No matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter how much plenty or how much want, you can trust the Lord has orchestrated every single day, every single moment, for He has this master mosaic. That in your little dark days, when you see it against the big backdrop, you're going to say, praise the Lord. And I'm so glad in those days you were near. He, he knows how easy it is to get distracted. So he says, when you get together, I want you to have this meal. I want you to share this meal and remember that I am near. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come today really with great joy that you have given us this tremendous wisdom, this book of wisdom. That you are the true wise man and that you have come to say, I understand the temptations, I am familiar with them myself. And I've come to say I've answered those by giving yourself for us. That on the night you were betrayed, you took the bread, you broke it, and you said, this is my body. You took the cup and gave it to your disciples and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. When you as believers get together, remember what I've done. Remember who I am. Remember that I am near. Lord, would you in this solemn moment be near to each one of your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.